0: Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. Thank you for giving us the gift of your time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in Scripture. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples as part of a non-denominational church in Los Angeles. And we'd love to be of some kind of encouragement and service to you. I'd love to hear your thoughts about our conversation today. Please let us know in the comments, subscribe to us, and reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. Or you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and on YouTube. Jesus' conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount has proven very riveting and powerful. He declares in Matthew 7:24 through 27 Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. There's a lot that we could look at regarding what Jesus has said here. It's the conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of controversy it engendered because of the boldness it maintained and the authority he spoke with. Uh, the fact that you know, the standards were these words of mine, and that's what the audience noted in the next couple of verses, in verses 20 through 29. And there's all kinds of different ways we can apply the metaphor. But for our conversation today, we want to consider the core aspects of the metaphor itself. The idea of a foundation, the idea of construction, and the storm. A foundation is the basis for the overall stability of a structure. And so for what Jesus is talking about, it's the fundamental assumptions and beliefs about ourselves and our existence, our environment, and how we relate to it all. The construction, of course, is the house that you build upon a foundation. And that would be the thoughts and feelings and actions that we experience throughout life. And the fact that we have to fit them into this construction uh, makes sense of it all uh, based upon what we have built. And the storm is the crisis points. Those are the various experiences and trials and tribulations that challenge how we understand ourselves and our existence, the things for which our framework uh, struggles to comprehend and to make sense of. Now, we see enlightened foundation, construction, and storm. Jesus is teaching how whenever our fundamental assumptions and beliefs align with what God has established in Christ, they should endure the crises of life. However, uh, if we have some fundamental assumptions and beliefs that do not align with what God has established in Christ, they will not endure these various crises we go through. And our self-understanding that we're going to build upon them will collapse. And this is well and good, basic understanding of the passage, but we need to be careful about the binary that we set up here. We understand why Jesus would establish that binary, and it's for good reason, but we need to be careful how we apply it in presuming that binary. Because can any of us say that our fundamental assumption beliefs about ourselves um, have nothing at all to do with what God has made known in Christ? Is there anybody out there like that, that nothing they believe about themselves or the world is in alignment with how God has established things in Jesus? And, outside of Jesus himself, on the other side, can any of us say that every single fundamental assumption or belief that we have about ourselves is entirely consistent with what God has made known in Christ? Because in truth, all of us have a mixed construction situation. We have all built somewhat, and hopefully very primarily and very well, on the rock of what God has made known in Christ. Yet, all of us have built somewhat on the sand of what we have heard and accepted from other sources that stand at variance with what God has done in Christ. And we've built on sand in those places, maybe by hearing what Jesus said, but not really doing it. So what's going to happen when those storms come? How will we manage the crises of life with a not entirely stable foundation? What if we have experienced in the past crises and have had some of our fundamental beliefs and assumptions about our lives seriously questioned? What if right now we are in the midst of a crisis where we're grappling with a lot of these things? Or maybe we're not in that situation at the very moment, but we want to be prepared, understanding there's going to be these storms and crises of life as we uh, carry on. Now, whether we've undergone it, we're in the middle of it, or we need to be prepared for it, the process that we need to go through is consistent with what is being called today deconstruction. Now, the word deconstruction has uh, ma- become a rallying point or a boogeyman in modern Christian discourse. There are a lot of people who are concerned about it and want to point out its postmodern and seemingly dangerous origins. Many have heard about people who have undergone deconstruction, they've abandoned their faith entirely, and thus are very afraid and concerned about what deconstruction might be, and see it as invariably negative. And there are some who made deconstruction, and for that matter anti-deconstruction, their whole ethos and personality. And it's never wise to do something like that. But we also have to recognize that many have undergone deconstruction in a way that has proved profitable for their lives, in the faith. And whether somebody wants to admit it or not, uh, at some level, everyone has deconstructed their perspective on something and have come out different in their belief system than when they had first begun. So, I mean, we can choose to set up deconstruction as an enemy and something to fear, or we can subject deconstruction to the ways of God in Christ to understand where it might be profitable and to provide encouragement and exhortation about when and how we might undergo deconstruction. Now, a major challenge with deconstruction involves how we uh, understand the term and define the process. Its critics and skeptics like to throw the name of Jacques Derrida around as the father of deconstruction and try to make it about some kind of postmodern nihilism. Now, Jacques Derrida was a French philosopher in the post-World War II era who did use the term deconstruction. He was translating Martin Heidegger's Destruction which Heidegger based on the work of Martin Luther, which was the idea of using philosophy as a way of, so to speak, destroying ossified and calcified aspects of traditions that overtake understanding of basic uh, concepts of nature and being. But Derrida worked to apply the concept to the interaction between text and meaning. And he confessed that in meaning in language is not static. There's nothing inherent about it that concepts are often understood in terms of their opposites, and that when we have those kind of opposite binaries, one of the term has primacy or supremacy over the other. We tend to understand one in terms of the other. Derrida did not expect the tension to get resolved, nor did he expect it to devolve into nihilism, as if meaning does not exist. But he wanted to make sure that in the field of textual criticism and in literature, there was the recognition of hierarchies and values in how words are understood. Yes, Derrida's work is consistent with postmodernism, but he considered himself part of the Enlightenment project. He really felt that he was just carrying on the work of Kant, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and Saussure, and recognized that the life of a text goes well beyond the original authors and the original authorial intent, and they get used in culture in various ways. And he wanted to reconsider some of the Western dialectic binaries. And this is completely consistent with the work of the academy and primarily of interest in use for specialists in language, philosophy, and literary criticism. It's an ironic vindication of De- of one of Derrida's principles, the idea that uh, uh, there a concept or... A textual work will take on a life well beyond the intent of the author, because what Derrida has proposed in terms of words, texts, and meanings has now been taken and applied to other domains. And for our purposes, we're seeing how the concept is applied in terms of one's faith and religion. Because in terms of the modern Christian discourse, deconstruction is the critical reassessment of one's assumptions and belief systems, particularly as they relate to faith and one's life in a particular religious subculture its critics want to define deconstruction really as the process whereby one justifies one's apostasy. Uh, at most charitable, its critics will see de- uh, maybe deconstruction as uh, something that is bad, but there is a more honest grappling with theological or, or church abuse and harm. And at the very least charitable, uh, there's a lot of people who act as if there would never be any reason to justify our accountants anything close to deconstruction. We have to be clear and honest. There are some who do end up abandoning their faith through the process of deconstruction. But while some of the decisions made during the time may have contributed to that departure, rarely, if ever, is that the goal of the person at the beginning. And rarely, if ever, is there just no significant catalyst for such an experience. It's very easy for critics to act like deconstruction some kind of chic fad, as if all the cool kids are doing it. But when you talk to people, the people who are undergoing deconstruction didn't say, well, my friend was doing it, so it's the, the thing I was going to do. It normally it comes because of some crisis, some experience that they've had, some situation they've been in that's forced them to reassess things. If deconstruction were, as its critics claimed, a hip or chic postmodernist phenomenon with nothing behind it, then we should be very skeptical and distance ourselves from it. And it's true that we should always show some concern about the origins of ideas, but shouldn't we also have some concern about the origin of the antagonism some, uh, toward those semi-ideas? Shouldn't we be just as critical of those who are anti-deconstruction as those who would uh, speak and encourage deconstruction? Because what's motivating criticism and fear of deconstruction? Again, we could be charitable and suggest that there are some people who are just concerned that some people may be led astray and lose their faith. But is there more behind it? Because a lot of times what's going on is there may be people who are trying to prop up an institution uh, or are trying to not come to grips with the fact that there are very valid reasons why a lot of people are deconstructing and realizing that a lot of the things that they were taught cannot withstand critical self-assessment and critical scrutiny when compared to what God has made known in Christ and in scripture and so we do well not just to cast concerns and aspersions and doubts perhaps on what's going on with deconstruction but we also need to be just as skeptical about the motives of the anti-deconstructionists what are they really trying to uphold and support here now human history is littered with examples of dangers of taking ideas from the world and just uncritically applying them to matters of faith And yet, at the same time, there generally remains some germ of truth and importance in ideas from the world. And they can be used profitably in subjection to God's purposes in Jesus. We can kind of see this in Paul's own thinking. Paul is the one who warned the Colossians in Colossians 2 uh, not to be taken captive by worldly philosophies uh, making appeal to the basic elements of the world. But yet the same Paul is able to stand on on Areopagus in Acts 17 and quote from a Greek uh, philosopher about how in God we live and move and have our being and are his offspring. And he's able to quote uh, uh, somebody regarding the nature of the Cretans in the letter to Titus. And so even in Paul himself, we can see him showing if we just become subject to some worldly idea, it's going to lead us away from Christ. But there are things we can find in worldly, in in ideas promoted around the world that are consistent with what God has made known in Christ and are true in Christ and that we can use them profitably in the faith. And if we're clear here, and looking at what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 24 through 27, is it? Jesus expecting there to be a critical reassessment of one's assumptions and belief systems? Isn't that at least part of what's going on in that storm there, and the crisis going on, in the experience of the person involved? And when we look at the various ways people come to faith, we can see that deconstruction is going to be a part of that faith journey. In fact, we can see the conversion process as a moment of significant deconstruction. Because by necessity, if somebody had lived in the world, and and whether they lived uh, in in a kind of professing Christian community but did not join that profession, commission community, uh, or were just part of the world in general, uh, and part of the secular society, this rate or maybe came from uh, a different religious background, uh, Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim or animist or something of the sort, uh, there were assumptions and beliefs that they had lived with right Believed things they had been inculturated with over time that were on some other basis than what god had made known in jesus that converts are called upon like the thessalonians were in first thessalonians 1 and verse 9 to turn away from the idols they'd been serving in order to serve the true and living god and we know we talk about that as repentance right A metanoah, the renovation of the mind and heart for the better. This is part of the uh, exhortation of Peter in Acts 2.38 and Paul in Acts 17.30 and 31. Now, the fact of the matter is that going back to Jesus' metaphor, we can't jerry-rig a house built on the sand, establish it on the rock. Uh, That If you're going to have built on the rock, you're going to have to first tear down what you had built on. On sand, so that it can be built on the right foundation. We can't imagine we can just take whatever was built on sand, just dump it on the rock, and everything's going to be fine, because part of what we built on the sand was based upon it being built on sand. And so that is why we're going to have to uh, go through that process. Repentance by necessity requires a kind of critical self assessment that is a part of the deconstruction process, because what we're called upon is to now go through and see okay, now that we believe in Jesus. How do we understand our life in the past? We can't decide we're going to abandon everything completely. We have family. We have perhaps a spouse, depending on when we came over. Uh, There are a lot of things that we were taught that may in fact be consistent with what God has made known in Christ. We shouldn't just throw everything out, right? But we can't just uncritically accept everything in. And of course, when we first come to faith, That is one point where it begins, but it's not an ending thing, right? Because as we go through time and we serve the Lord Jesus, there may be times and situations where it becomes apparent that there were some parts of that foundation that still are built on sand. And what are we supposed to do when we come upon those, but to, again, tear those down so that we can properly build on the rock? Therefore, if somebody hears about Jesus, if their faith is going to be built up on Jesus, they're going to first have to deconstruct or tear down significant aspects of what they had formerly believed. Okay, so we're talking about those who convert out of the world, but what about those raised in the church? And there, a lot of people feel uncomfortable with that kind of terminology. The fact of the matter is that there is a difference between those who have been fully enculturated in a secular world or a different religious environment from those who have been raised among God's people as part of God's people community, even if they have not yet uh, owned Jesus for themselves uh, and have established their commission for service for him in baptism. Uh, but to that end, we should consider the name that Yahweh gave to his people, Israel, which means wrestles with God. It was a name given to Jacob in Genesis 32, 24-31, after Jacob very physically and concretely wrestled with an angel of God. Now before this point, he had spoken of God as the God of his fathers, like in Genesis 31, verse 53, the fear of his father Isaac. But afterward, in Genesis 33, and verse 20, he will build an altar to El Elohe Israel, God is the God of Israel. And what Jacob went through personally, by virtue of that name, is going to become the archetype for his descendants, that each successive generation would have to become Israel, those who wrestle with God, in order to take the faith that they had in the God of their fathers to make it their own faith in God. And in Galatians 6 and verse 16, Paul will ask for there to be peace upon the Israel of God, upon those who today are those who wrestle with God, who are his people, who are Christians. And so that process remains for us. And notice that we're talking about this under the most ideal circumstances, that even when a person is raised in a supportive environment in which their parents and their churches generally embody Jesus very well, The deposit of faith which they have been given must involve some kind of wrestling and grappling with which they will eventually make it their own. It's going to have to go through some kind of, again, critical self-assessment at various points, normally precipitated by some kind of catalytic experience that we would call a crisis. And this, again, even when you have the most ideal circumstances. And I don't have to tell you that there are a lot of less-than-ideal circumstances out there. The catalyst for a lot of deconstruction has involved the people of God, either those in the past or in the present, who have behaved badly. Because if you were to ask people who would self-identify as undergoing or having undergone deconstruction about what precipitated that deconstruction, or the issues that led them to struggle with their faith, there may be some who... Encountered some kind of illness situation or active violence or just accident that caused them to question some things. Uh, you, may, you will find a few people who absolutely would like to rationalize, justify, and excuse things that God has declared are wrong or immoral. And they have been given the impression that they're trying to find ways to justify why those things actually are okay. There are going to be some people like that. However, A lot of people, when they are struggling with their faith and are going through deconstruction, it's because they have experienced personally or have seen the people of God behaving badly. A big catalyst has become the fact that they have seen people participating in themselves or justifying emotional, mental, mental, physical, religious, and or sexual abuse, and they've seen the structures and systems among Christians that have rationalized, justified, and unfortunately perpetuated that kind of abuse. They have seen or experienced sexual harassment. They have seen or experienced ethnic or racial animus or hostility, and they have seen an unadulterated uh, manifestations of white supremacy, Uh, and denigration of anyone other than white people or people who were born here in America and the very poor view and treatment of those who are not like them. They have seen uh, political hypocrisy in partisanship where the faith has been made an instrument of a political ideology or partisan position and also the justification of past atrocities uh, involving uh, genocide, slavery, uh, perpetuation of oppressive systems, or an unwillingness to grapple with the implications of the existence of past atrocities, and what does it mean that I am now sharing the same faith as those who did things like that in the past. Contrary to the, what a lot of the critics will tell you, most of those who undergo a time of deconstruction did not ask for it, and they did not want it. And it's not like what they're going to get out of it is better, perhaps, than where they start. In fact, many people going through that stand to lose a lot from it. Uh, they lose uh, loved ones, friends, family. It leads to significant alienation and, and, and disagreement in their families uh, and among their friend groups. Um, they may be very much out on their own. And even if they can find a supportive uh, support network, for themselves, they still have to go through the grief of, of loss of a lot of the things that they held dearly, a lot of their childhood dreams, a lot of the way things looked or seemed to be in the past. And so it is a very difficult thing for people that people aren't just zealously inge- and desiring to go and do. That's a very unhelpful caricature to suggest anything of the sort. And perhaps in a profound irony. Many are going to say their disillusionment came precisely because they lived in church environments where they were taught about who Jesus was and what Jesus was about. And then when they grew up, they used their ability to discern that they had gained in their growth and maturity to see that the things that had been taught about Jesus were very good and right, but they were not seeing Jesus being well reflected and embodied in the people. And we can always say, well, they should be more forgiving of people and their weakness, and we can understand that. And I think even a lot of people who have gone through deconstruction would agree with that. The problem was not that people sin, because everybody sins, but there seemed to be an unwillingness to even grapple with the significant gulf between what they were taught about Jesus and what they were seeing people in the church reflecting. And, and I say this with bitter lament, they often have seen how people who are not in the church are reflecting Jesus many ways better than those who claim to be of Jesus. And that's very bitter and and, and a terrible thing. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God. And when we can open our understanding of judgment to get beyond just the ultimate judgment on the final day, and be willing to see how God is, in a, in a sense, continually judging the nations, and also will at times judge his own people. We can see how we are at a current moment of crisis in uh, Christianity, where this judgment is going on. Uh, you're seeing the trajectories of people who are attending and the numbers of people participating is, is starting to go down significantly. You're seeing a lot of churches closed. You're seeing a lot of churches without preachers or ministers. A lot of them are getting disillusioned and leaving. Uh, it, you have a lot of young people leaving the faith. This is a, a, a crisis point. And in this crisis point, a lot of people have defensively circled the wagons maintaining this fearful posture, and their goal has been to defend the institution. And so to defend the institution, they're going to give the benefit of the doubt always to those who are being charitable toward the institution, and they're always going to be more skeptical and defensive against those who would make any critique of the institution or those within it. And that kind of posturing, that kind of circling the wagons and defensive posturing, alienates those undergoing crisis. And it contributes to that alienation that leads many toward apostasy. Because the minute some people start deconstructing and doing critical self-assessment, and they no longer can sustain some of the cognitive dissonance, uh, a lot of the people in their lives will probably just cut them off. And it it gives them really nothing else to do but to uh, go further or be alienated. And it's a bitter, lamentable thing. Yes, all people sin. All people fall short of God's glory in Romans 3.23. And we have often an automatic impulse to say, hey, people in the past, people in these our situations, you've got to understand where they're coming from. You've got to understand the context in which they live. And there's a very healthy wariness about judging those who have come before. Because judgment is very easy to render, right? That we feel like, well, we're you know telling other people they're going to hell. Uh, and it's easy to say the people before us are going to go to hell. When it's not our judgment to make, in Romans 14, 10-12, each of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We all who are living today, those in the past, are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. But it is precisely how God's people have behaved badly, and how they've been unwilling or unable to see it, which is what's demonstrating very powerfully this need for deconstruction, even without a precipitating crisis. What do we mean by all of this? Well, we need to return to Jesus' description of the foolish person who hears, uh, who builds on the sand. Excuse me. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, Matthew twenty-six. Notice that again. Who are these people? They who hear the words of Jesus but do not do them. It's a good reminder that what we're talking about cannot be merely uh, restricted to the, the the domain of ideas. It's not just about thoughts going on here. And unfortunately, in our modern secular society, we've kind of departmentalized everything, categorized everything, and so we have kind of separated out our mental processes and our ideology, ideology and ideological processes from our praxis, from the things that we're actually doing. And that's not healthy, and that's not good, and it's not something that Jesus has done. So who are those who hear Jesus' words but do not do them? Well, the the quick answer, right, the one that we would think immediately are those who reject the gospel, right? Those who, you know, they hear something about Jesus and like, this is not for me. Those are the ones who hear Jesus' words, but don't do them. But should we stop there? Well, what do we think about Adolf Hitler? Well, he professed to follow Jesus. He no doubt had heard many of Jesus' words. Yet by common confession, and again, we're not saying where his soul is before God, but based on what we know of Adolf Hitler, we don't have a lot of confidence for him, do we? Uh, And we can certainly say that since he commissioned the slaughter of untold millions, he did not do the words of Jesus. He was not following what Jesus told us to do. Okay, well, what do we say about those who have fallen prey to the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, right? Paul warned Timothy that this would happen, that people would come and, and, and be led astray by them. That they read the words of Jesus, but they persevere in all kinds of beliefs and practices. They're not just foreign to what God has made known in Christ, but often explicitly contrary to them, right? Have they not heard Jesus' words, and they're not doing them? What are we going to say about those who committed genocide against indigenous people and perpetuate the chattel slave trade and system in the American South, in the Caribbean, and the South America, from 1492 into the 20th century? A lot of them profess Jesus, right? Didn't they hear his words? And yet they found in their minds the way to justify and rationalize what they were doing, and they were doing things that we would say are very much contrary to what God has established in Jesus. And what do we say about those who advocated for white supremacy from the 1700s until this very day? And they did it in the name of Jesus. Did they not read what Jesus said, yet did not do what he said? In many respects we're still being asked to choose to emphasize some of Jesus over other aspects of Jesus in our most recent versions of the culture war. We'll see that those who are confident that they're hearing Jesus' words and doing them in terms of abortion and sexual ethics do not seem to want to emphasize Jesus' words about the treatment of the other and the exploited and the oppressed. And those who are confident they're hearing Jesus' words and doing them in terms of the treatment of the other, the exploited and the oppressed, don't seem to want to emphasize Jesus' words about sexual ethics. But again, the truth of this matter is, again, far more uncomfortable than even the things we've talked about. Because we need to, again, get away from that binary. In some ways, each and every one of us hear Jesus' words, but do not do them. Every one of us hears Jesus, but doesn't do everything he says. Because none of us are only enculturated by God and Jesus. We have all been enculturated by our parents, our families, nuclear and extended, our friend groups, our communities, our society, and our uh, dealing with uh, the, in our own experiences and what we have gained from our own experiences. Each and every one of us finds some aspects of what it means to follow Jesus and righteousness in Jesus less challenging to uphold. There are some things that come more naturally and easily to us by our temperament and our personality and what we have experienced. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are other aspects that we find more challenging to uphold, perhaps for the very same reasons. We would rather find ways to be consistent than to continually experience discomfort and the cognitive dissonance of hypocrisy. Whatever we do not emphasize, we find easy to deny. And that's when you go back and think about the culture war places where the things that are more negative are things that are suppressed. The things that work with what they're doing are more emphasized. And it's what they're ignoring or suppressing that you're going to really see uh, somebody's faithful level of discipleship or the lack thereof. And this tendency is always most pronounced in terms of those things we take for granted or that in which we maintain a vested interest. So, for instance, we talked about white supremacy in the past. They had a lot of people back then who had vested interest in it. That was how their society was constructed. And if it were no longer that way, they would find themselves at significant disadvantage if they even thought about it. Otherwise, they took it for granted. Yeah, white people are superior to black people. Everybody knows that. Same thing with the way that the genocides were perpetuated. The same reason why denominational organizations and institutions continue to maintain their commitments to certain ideological issues and questions from the 16th century beforehand or afterward, uh, because uh, they have vested interest in those things uh, if they're not taking it for granted. And there's a lot of people today, all of us, have vested interests in all kinds of things that may run into conflict with our beliefs in jesus financial positions political philosophy passions desires personal relationships and so on and so forth and a lot of these positions are not exactly well reasoned in in people's minds it was they always were taught right or what they always believed and there's no reason ever to question it so when there is no catalyst for critical self-assessment we will generally not think twice about our lives and our conduct and we will persist in this delusion that we have that we are completely faithful to jesus when in some domains we're really guilty of having heard jesus's words but not doing them so can we understand a lot of concerns and criticisms about deconstruction absolutely if the lord wills and we encourage you to consider it uh we hopefully next we'll consider some of the perils that will come with deconstruction but while those concerns and criticisms and peril do exist that doesn't mean we can just discredit dismiss, ignore, or sweep the idea of deconstruction away, because deconstruction proves absolutely necessary for a living, dynamic, and healthy faith, because everybody who converts by necessity needs to deconstruct and critically assess the assumptions and beliefs that they maintain to subject everything to God in Christ. And this is not something we just do once. It is something that through practicing the faith, more layers and levels of those assumptions are going to be exposed. That those raised in the church will need to wrestle with God in order to make the faith they received and heard into their own faith. And we're going to go through various crises in life that are going to test our beliefs, our values, and our faith. In the process, we're going to have to deconstruct and tear apart some ideas and practices which were unhealthy and not consistent with what God has purposed in Christ. Because we're all guilty, to some degree or another, of hearing Jesus' words but not doing them. And it's only when we submit ourselves to that critical self-assessment that is catalyzed by experiences we've had or engaged with other perspectives, that we're going to be able to see where we have gone astray in our belief, our emphases, or our practice, and to give us that chance to repent and to build more solidly and and, and to be founded more properly on the rock of, what Je- of not just hearing Jesus' words, but also doing them. So how can we continually subject ourselves to God's purposes in Christ to build appropriately on the rock, and deconstruct all that has been built on sand. love to hear your thoughts about this and anything else we've discussed about deconstruction. Please let us know in the comments, and we encourage you to please subscribe to us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for everything that you've done for us and all that you've given us. Uh, We're thankful for you and for Jesus, the Spirit, the Word, for one another, uh, for uh, the material blessings of this creation, every spiritual blessing with which you've blessed us in Jesus. We recognize and humbly confess, Father, that wherever we are on our faith journey, there are ways in which we have heard what you have established in Jesus, but we have not done them. We have, For whatever reason, we have not emphasized them. We find them challenging and find it easier to ignore them. Whatever it may be, there are aspects in our life of, of faith where we are more built on sand than on the rock. And we pray for your wisdom and insight, to be able to discern those things, to go through those processes of of critical self-assessment, which could be called deconstruction, in order to uh, look at those things and to see where we have been founded improperly, and to repent and to change so that we can be founded more properly on the rock. We pray that you would provide wisdom, guidance, and comfort for those currently experiencing a season of deconstruction. Uh, that they may find a support with God's people and to be able to uh, maintain confidence in in you and in Jesus and in all that you have done in Jesus and that they can be encouraged by fellow Christians through this time and to come out with a stronger, healthier faith, more uh, firmly established on the rock of what your son has said and doing them. And we pray that we would also provide a opportunity for those who may perhaps gone beyond such to be able to return to faith and to build again appropriately on jesus and we pray that we would all be humbly able to have that that disposition where we are willing to question and challenge uh things so that we can be sure we are built appropriately and not just perpetuating uh the various forms of injustice and oppression that can come in when people build on sand and justify what they have built on the sand uh, we look forward to the return of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the ultimate judgment where all that we have built will be exposed and that we will hopefully be found faithful in you and to obtain the resurrection of life in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us. If we want to be of service to you, please let us know how we can help you. Let us know at VenetichurchofChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, or YouTube. We again thank you. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.